Now you know, you know, okay, we're all on this. We, we don't do that just to be goofy, okay? It's kind of a goofy thing, but we do it to kind of introduce a really serious, important, valid study that we have been doing as the body of Christ here at Eastside. And that is that we have been looking at the places in the book of John. Only happens in the book of John. Been telling you that every week. This is a great kind of trivia thing to know. Only in the book of John, we are given seven different places where Jesus says, this is who I am. And when you find out who he is, and you understand the metaphors that he uses, what it does is it stirs up your affection for him. I love that. I love that. As we are learning here at Eastside who Jesus is, that he's the greatest of all time, and we hear how he describes himself. Dude, it just, it just brings some affections in your heart and reminds you of why you love Jesus the way you do. When I started this week's message and started studying and writing it, it reminded me of one of the encouragements that we're given toward the latter half of the New Testament. You may have seen this at some point if you're reading through the book of Hebrews, and it has this phrase in the 12th chapter, fix your eyes on Jesus. Just look at Jesus. And when you find out who he is, gang, and you find out the type of person he was and the things that he did, Man, your heart just says, that's, that's why I love him. That's why I love him. And so I've been looking forward to this study for a long, long time here at Eastside where we would do that and we would go to those seven different specific places where Jesus picked a word picture, a metaphor, and he just said, hey, hey this is who I am. And we got three under our belt now. We spent three weeks and we've looked at them and they've kind of focused on when Jesus described himself as the greatest bread and the greatest light and last week the greatest door. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, man, when you understand those, not just when you read them there, but when you, when you know what he was trying to say, okay, man, you just, that's why I love him. And that's what we've been trying to do over this series. And, and so if you haven't been there at some of these, I hope you'll, you'll, you'll knock out a half hour of your time and you'll get online and listen to those. And, and what we're gonna do this weekend is we're gonna jump into the fourth one. And let me tell you this about the fourth one, that if Jesus is not the center of your life, listen to me, dudes, this is gonna do it for you. Because on his fourth description of who he was, he talked about himself being the greatest shepherd, the greatest shepherd of all time. And you probably have heard that at some point in your life, and you might have read it in scripture, but have you ever dug way down in it and you found out this is what he was talking about? And you're gonna get an opportunity in this service right now to learn that. And I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna tell you, it's, it's gonna rock your heart. It's gonna rock your heart. Now it comes up in the 10th chapter of the book of John, and I'm gonna read these with you here in a second. You're gonna find out that he actually said it two times. 
And if you're here last week, you'll remember that when he talked about being the door, the gate, he said it four times, okay? And so when he talked about shepherd, he, he said it twice. And what I want to do for you is I want to I show you on the screen here the two times when he called himself with that metaphor. And then I just want to read, I just want you to hear the words that he said at the end of each one of those. And you'll kind of you'll get what I'm, what I'm talking about here for a minute. So let's jump into chapter 10, and we're going to look at the 11th verse. And Jesus said it with these words, I am the good shepherd, period. And then he, then he said these things after it. He said, now the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, the hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. And then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. And then Jesus said, right on the heels of that in the 14th verse again, I am the good shepherd. He said, I know my sheep. My sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. Now, I got other sheep that are not of the sheep pen, and I must bring them also. They too, catch this, they too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, and I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Now, if you were reading through the 10th chapter of John and you read those two sections, where they are kind of catapulted at the start with this proclamation of him being the good shepherd, and then all the stuff that I just read under that, your reaction probably would be, okay, that's nice, but you know, really, really, what's that mean? And we're gonna dive into it, okay? And I'm gonna take you on a journey with me in the next several minutes that if Jesus doesn't have your heart, if, if he don't have it when we're done, I, I don't know that that's gonna happen for you. It is an incredible analogy. So let's figure this out. I want you to hear me about something. I want you to hear this carefully. Nobody knows, nobody ever knows how God can use normal experiences of your life, just normal stuff that you're doing, driving down the road, going to the grocery store, working out at the gym, just normal stuff you do. Nobody ever knows how God might use one of those occasions to place a seed somewhere deep into your brain that will someday seep out and help teach you something about God. I think that's why the Bible says, be alert, watch, pay attention. And so on this week, as I sit down in my office and begin to kind of make sense of all this, and what is, what is Jesus trying to say about being the shepherd, and what can we talk about as the church here at Eastside to make that clear, and I'm putting all that together, 
this metaphor of being a good shepherd comes seeping out into my brain on an old sandlot baseball field. Man, it was a much simpler day in time when I was a kid. In that simple day, all the, all the boys in the neighborhood, all, all the guys, man, during the summer and the days are warm, would, would wake up in the morning and make their way down to the ball field. That rustic, old, beaten down, broken up little baseball field on the corner of the lot next to the grade school of the neighborhood. And they all, they all made their way there, man. I mean, we were, we were all there. My, my brother Scott and I and, and, and Teddy Kingry and Charlie Boswell and sometimes his brother Jeff showed up and Jerry Bardis and Larry Lucas and John Mathis and Timmy Brewer and Terry True. And I'm writing all these names as I remember him this week. And once in a while, the Henderson brothers would show up, but they were weirdos, so nobody really liked them. So we kind of hope they didn't show up. Man, we would all, we were there, and we'd play all day, okay? We'd play all day. We didn't know about, you know, hiding down in your basement and playing video games. All, what in the world is that about, huh? Man, all we knew was, let's get together and let's just play all day and let's have fun. Man, we're just good old American boys growing up together. And then, then that little thing seeps out of my brain that God is going to plant so that years later, this will make sense to me because something happened when we were there every time we were there around dinner time because our homes were all in the neighborhood and, and somewhere around dinner time when moms would start having the dinner together. I, dude, we didn't have watches and phones that told us what time to be home. We didn't have that. We just playing, man. We're living as boys, having fun. But dinner was done. And so the dads would come out on the, the porch and they'd whistle. How many of y'all remember that whistle? And the unique thing about that that I don't know that I realized in those days because God would use normal, everyday experiences of life to help you understand him sometime later. Nobody caught it back then, but now that I look back, I remembered that when the whistle happened, the only person who responded to the whistle was that dad's boy. And so, we'd, we'd hear the sound of a whistle, and man, we just keep playing. Except Terry, because Terry says, that's my dad's whistle. And Terry takes off, because dinner's ready. And my brother and I can both close our eyes and transport ourselves back in those days when we would hear the whistle of Gino as our dad. And dude, you play all you want. We're heading to dinner because we heard the whistle of our dad. It's interesting that if it weren't the whistle of our dad, it had no effect on us. Now, we open up this scripture and we start to read through it and we are struck with the reality 
a reality that maybe we didn't quite understand that was going to come up, that, that Jesus is going to tell a story. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. This is, this is earth moving. Jesus is going to tell a story about sheep who hear the voice of their shepherd and they follow him. Now watch, watch. Don't let this get past you. They will not follow other voices. They'll only follow their shepherd. This is fascinating. Whenever you got a few minutes to absolutely blow, get on a device somewhere and get on Google and search sheep who follow the voice of their shepherd. Get on there and watch that. This actually happens in today, in the Middle East. You can get on Google, you can find examples of tourist companies where they bring tourists in to large pastures of sheep and they'll bring the tourists one at a time and they will allow the, the, the tourists to yell out at the sheep and you're watching the video and the sheep just keep grazing, man, doing their thing, whatever sheep do. And the tourists are yelling and we'll bring another tourist and they'll yell and nothing will happen. They'll tell them what to yell and they'll yell and nothing will happen. And then they'll bring the shepherd. And the shepherd will yell and the sheep immediately come to him. Now, you know, you know because you're smart, okay? You go to Eastside, okay? Other churches, they wouldn't get it, but you will, okay? You know Jesus isn't giving us a lesson about how animals respond to their owner. That's not what he's talking about. It is a metaphor. It is a metaphor that you've got to understand the bridge of the metaphor. The metaphor is that Jesus is talking about those who follow the Father. He's talking about spiritual sheep. He's talking about you, you and me, those of us who know the Father, who love the Son, who honor the Spirit. He's talking about the flock of God's people. Watch this, the flock who follow the voice of the shepherd. That when the shepherd speaks, the sheep, the sheep follow. That no matter what the shepherd says, the sheep hear him. The sheep begin to be attracted to the voice of the shepherd, no matter what the shepherd says. And so if the shepherd says, I want you to forgive the person who hurts you, the sheep are gonna try to figure that out. And if the shepherd says, I want you to help people who are fallen on hard times, the sheep choose not to ignore those people. When the shepherd says, I want you to use some of your money to expand the kingdom of God, the sheep figure a way to make that part of our budget. When the shepherd says, pray instead of worry, the sheep fall to our knees instead of throwing all our junk on Facebook. The sheep follow the voice of the shepherd. Amen? Amen? Okay, now watch this, watch. Here's where we're gonna get down into your business because I've been in my business all week and I'm ready to get into yours. Watch this. Why is that? 
Why do the sheep follow the voice of the shepherd? Why do you do that? If anybody ever came up to you and said, come on, man, get real with me. Lay it on the line to me. Why do you do the things you do as a Christian? Why do you do that? Can I ask you it this way? What are you doing here tonight? Why on earth, whatever you had going on in life or what you could have been doing tonight, why on earth have you chosen to be here? Why do you follow the sheep? Why do you do that? Why do you put yourself in a subservient role to the shepherd? Why? When he says, I want you to be about this, why do you even try that? When he says, now don't do this over here, why do you let him tell you what you can't do? Why do you follow the shepherd? Why would you ever do that? Now that's the point of the text in John 10, because Jesus answers it. And I don't want you to miss this. Jesus makes it clear, here's why sheep follow me. Because they know what I did for them. They know that. It is not a coincidence, it's not a mistake, it's not bad translation of the Bible that in the section that I read for you, five specific times Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd, watch this, and I choose to lay down my life. I choose to do that. Now you heard me read it, let me show it to you real quick. Verse 11. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Next verse, 15. I lay down my life for the sheep. Next verse, verse 17. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life. Verse 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Again in the 18th verse. I have authority to lay it down. Every time that that came up five times, it's actually just one word in the beautiful Greek language, a word pronounced tithaimi. And what that means is that Jesus is saying, don't miss this, why would anybody follow him? And Jesus said, here's why. Because I have chosen willingly to die for you. Tithaimi means I lay it down. Nobody overcame Jesus. Nobody was more powerful than Jesus. Nobody just showed up and said, we're getting rid of you, Jesus. No, it happened because Jesus said, I choose to lay it down. And why would sheep ever follow him? Because we know what he did for us. That concept of the first century reader when they first heard the story, those who were there who heard it firsthand, they knew exactly what Jesus was trying to say. Check this out, and you're gonna have to think about it for a while. So you might wanna take a picture of it or get online and look at it again. Watch this. In the old system, careful, watch this. 
the sheep died unwillingly for the sins of the shepherds. So when people sinned, they brought lambs and sheep to be sacrificed. You can bet everything you've got. If the sheep knew what was happening, they wouldn't have wanted it to happen. That was the old system. Watch this. In the new system, the good shepherd died willingly for the sins of the sheep. That's why sheep follow the good shepherd because they know what he did for them, willingly. Now, it is not a mistake that once you kind of understand now what Jesus was trying to say is that I'm going to die and allow myself to die on your behalf. And he said five times, I'm doing it on my own, dudes. I'm doing it on my own. And, and, and his point is that when that gets in you and you understand it, you begin to hear his voice and follow wherever he leads. Now let me get messy with you. Catch me, catch me carefully. When you ignore his voice, I'm not doing that. I'm gonna do it my way over here. When you ignore his voice, it's because you have forgotten what he did for you. Now, it is intriguing to me on the weekend that we do this and talk about the willing death of Jesus that we are a few days in front of the week in which we will celebrate the willing death of Jesus. And so I've had kind of a, 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 a format in my ministry for years and years and years, about every maybe four or five years, somewhere around there, I make sure that we take a little bit of time during the Easter season, and as a church, we relive the death of Jesus. That we understand what happened in the dynamics of all of that. That we go back and we relive those few hours. And the motive behind reliving that and to see again what happened during that period of time, the motive behind all of that is that as I understand what he willingly did, the only result of that is, is dude, I'm going to follow. I'm going to listen. I'm going to hear your voice because of what you did. And so I want to take you over the next several minutes, I want to take you on a brief, because of time, we, we can't do everything about it, but, but I, I, I want to take you on a brief and quick look at the 21 hours in the life of Jesus that deal with his final moments here. And when you take the 21 hours that I'm going to show you in a minute and just kind of look through what happened, you take everything we have in the Bible that describes what happens. And so Matthew wrote about it, Mark, Luke wrote it, and, and Luke wrote, and John wrote, and you take all of that together and you say, we're going to put it into one story. It's called a harmony of the story. You put it all together, the scripture tells us that during those 21 hours, there were about 10 very significant points of interest. I'm going to walk you through those real quick so that we live it, so that we feel it. And the end result is, man, if he did that because he willingly did that, I will 
follow him. And if you're in this room right now, and you're not quite following him, maybe you haven't really done well with that lately, or maybe you've never chosen that Jesus will be the master of my life, and you think, why would anybody do that? I'm about to tell you why. Because willingly he did this. Let me show you the first point of interest. The first three kind of go together. It began with a meal. Somewhere around six, seven o'clock on Thursday night, Jesus is meeting with his closest friends. And there's all kinds of things that happen during that meal that because of the interest of time, we can't look into all of them. But let me tell you one thing that I think must have been penetrating. I mean, you think about it. You got your best friends around the table and you're having a dinner, and it was a special dinner, man. It was a holiday dinner, and they're just around there. You can imagine they were having all kinds of fun and talking about all kinds of stuff, and then Jesus kind of interrupted everything. And Jesus looked at his best friends and he said, one of you, one of you, one of you around this table, you will betray me. The Bible says that one by one, they all started looking at Jesus and saying, is that going to be me? Am I that guy? And, and you can just kind of feel what that must have been like around the table. If you're one of those people and you hear that and, and people, is, is it me? Is it me? Watch this. Very carefully. Listen to this. Nowhere in scripture do we have anybody. Matthew doesn't tell it. Mark, Luke, John. Nobody says anything. When everybody is saying, is it me? Is it me? We have no mention at all of Jesus responding to them. He didn't say anything to them. Until Judas jumped in. Judas said, is it me? And Jesus looked at him and said, yeah, it's you. Judas got up and went out of the room. Can you imagine you think you've been at awkward holiday meals? <laughs> Powerful stuff starts 6, 7 o'clock on Thursday. We anticipate that meal went on maybe for a couple hours or so. So somewhere around 8, 9 o'clock, they leave. And the second kind of interesting aspect happens, and that's a moment of prayer. They go out into a garden Jesus begins to pray. There's a lot of stuff that we know happened during that period of prayer. Again, in the interest of time, we can't, we can't bring it all up. But there's a strange thing that happened while this prayer was happening out in this garden that it, it just mentioned briefly in the book of Luke. Nobody else even mentions it. It's this strange little verse that kind of written. It. You're going, what is that? And, and Luke is the only guy who wrote it. And Luke, if you don't know, was a doctor. Luke's watching the prayer event, and he said Jesus began to pray with such intensity. Now think about that. Let's say that you knew, you knew right now that tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock you're going to die. You know that's going to happen, and you're praying about it right now. How do you think that prayer is going to be going? Man, it's going to be the most intense emotional prayer you've ever prayed in your life. And Luke said he was watching him pray, and he noticed that the sweat that was coming from the pores of his skin, which really wasn't sweat, was droplets of blood. And he just mentioned that and moved on. And you read it, and you're going, what? What does that mean? 
Medically, although very rare, medically, when the body is under incredible tension and stress, there are moments in which the capillaries under our skin actually break and the blood slips through the pores of the skin. And Jesus is praying with such incredible intensity that he is bleeding from the pores of his face. Watch, watch this. And he chose to do that. I lay it down. This is my choice. I, I find it intriguing as you look at that prayer, and it, it deserves its own message on its own day. But you know you can go back and you can read about what he prayed, okay? And, and I don't know if you know this. I don't know. This, this will blow your mind if it's the first time you've ever heard it. But one of the things he prayed about, get ready, one of the things he prayed about was you. You. He's about to die in what he knows is going to happen, and he's praying about all kinds of things, and one of the things he starts praying about is the people in the future who would follow him, the sheep, me, you. How does that make you feel that right before Jesus died that you came to mind? And you know what he prayed about? Get ready because if you... If you haven't wept in a while, this ought to make you weep. This is what he prayed. And I'm going to use Dave Hastings' 21st century slang, okay? Help them get along. Somebody say, wow. Of all the things that he could have prayed for me and you, help them get along. And you and I are living in the most divisive time in the history of most of our lives. Everybody is mad. And Jesus said, just, just let them get along in their churches and in their homes and in their marriages and in their schools. And then he does something that you're just scratching your head. The prayer is ending and he leaves the garden where he's praying and he goes to a place that he frequented. Now that is big. If you knew authorities were looking for you to arrest you, they were coming after you, you knew that. It's on the news, everybody's calling you. Man, they're coming to get you. Who here is gonna say, dude, I'm gonna run home. I'm gonna hide. You're not gonna go home. That's the first place they're going to look for you. And Jesus knew. They all know that I go over there. And so he went over there because he willingly laid his life down. And what we find on the heels of that is the third major event of interest in the 21 hours, and that was his arrest. I mean, if you read about that, there's all kinds of things in there that are happening, probably somewhere around 2 o'clock in the morning. Judas shows up, the one that he called out at the meal not many hours before, and Judas shows up because he's bought the ability to tell the authorities where Jesus is, and they could have showed up in the middle of the night, and Judas could have said to the authorities, he's right there, that guy right there. He didn't do it because he wanted to be a phony about it, so he didn't look like he was a part of it, and he went over, and he told him before, I'm going to go over, I'm going to kiss him, I'm going to greet him, I'm going to kiss him on the 
the jaw. And that's the guy. So he goes over there, kisses him on the jaw so that Jesus thinks he doesn't have anything in it. And the master, the Lord of heaven and earth, knew that the lips of a traitor just kissed his cheek. One of the guys flips out, one of Jesus' followers. If I was there, it'd been me. He takes a sword, swings it, cuts the ear of one of the guys off, flops his ear off. That'd been me. Anybody else would that be you? Okay. Do you ever read what Jesus did? <laughs> I think there's got to be times when you just, what? Jesus walked over, picked the dude's ear up, and put it back on his, and healed him, okay? His name was Malchus. We never hear from him ever again. If you were Malchus, how do you not believe? And so they arrest him. Everybody deserts him. They leave the area of the arrest somewhere around 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. And then the next five events deal with his trial where they've got to judge him. Now, you would think most people, after you're arrested, we're going to sit you there for a while. We'll work things up. In a couple of weeks, we'll bring you in. We're going to go to walk through everything. Jesus went through five trials in the middle of the night. The first one he went to, which is the fourth event that kind of all go together, is a guy named Annas. Annas was the high priest of the Jewish religion the previous year. His term was up now. He'd been the leader of all the Jews for a long time. And then his term was up, and now it's the next year. And so they bring Jesus into the city, and they say, let's take him to Annas. Not because Annas is the high priest anymore. He's not. But everybody still thinks he's the leader. You ever been in a country? <laughs> you ever been in a country where the previous leader is still viewed by some people as still the leader? Okay? That's what's going on. And so they show up at Annas because they think Annas has really got the power. He don't have the position, he got the power. He's gonna make this happen. Annas is too smart for that. Dudes, what are you bringing him here? I'm not the guy anymore. Watch this, this is crazy. The high priest, the guy in position now, was the son-in-law of Annas. And Annas said, I'm not gonna deal with him. Get him out of here, I have nothing to do with him. But before you take him away, let's slap him around a little bit. Did you hear that? Let's just slap him around a little bit. It's the first time they slapped him around. And they take him to Caiaphas, the son-in-law of Annas, Caiaphas is the guy who can make this happen. Caiaphas is the dude who can end this thing. And word had got over to the palace of Caiaphas. We're talking middle of the night that we're bringing, oh, Jesus over. And so what Caiaphas did was he got the board together. There were 70 people on the board, and they all appeared at the, 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 the house, the palace of Caiaphas in the middle of the night to await the coming of Jesus. Now, don't just hear that and forget about it. I had coffee this morning with a friend of mine at 7.30 this morning, and we've been trying to get together for a month, and we finally had a time after a month of trying where we can get together for 45 minutes at 7.30 in the morning. Two people just trying to get together. It took us a month, and in the middle of the night, without notice, Caiaphas pulled 70 people together. The passion to do away with Jesus was incredible. They hired some people to show up and be witnesses and to fabricate lies about what Jesus did 
soldiers were ordered for the second time, beat him up a little bit. Can, can you imagine that? Can you imagine that being in a court of law and being questioned for crimes that you didn't commit and before you're ever called guilty at all, we're just going to beat you up a little bit while we question you. And finally, at the end of the whole setting, Caiaphas claims him to be guilty. The 70 agree, and Jesus will be executed. Now, the problem with that is that Jews couldn't execute anybody. They didn't, Romans didn't care what your laws were. You were in Roman territory. Jews can't kill people. Only Romans can. So what they did was they took Jesus now to the Roman section of authority and let the Romans decide that they will kill him. And so from the palace of Caiaphas, they then moved to Pilate. Pilate is beautiful. This guy is beautiful. He is the governor of Galilee. I want you to think of it this way, that, that let's call him the governor of Kentucky, okay? And so he represents Kentucky. He's the governor. So Caiaphas or, or Pilate is the governor of Galilee, and they take Jesus there, and he does not want to have anything to do with this. I'm sleeping. You woke me up. I don't care about your silly religious laws. I don't have anything to do with this. Who is this guy? Jesus talks, and he finds out Jesus is from Judah. He's not from Galilee. Uh, Pilate goes, hallelujah, he's not my problem. Let's send him to Judah. It would be like the governor of Kentucky hearing that he's actually from Indiana. And he'd say, take him to Holcomb. He's not my issue. And so Pilate says, get him out of here. Now, before you get him out of here, before you take him out, let me beat him up a little bit. And so they beat him up again, and then they take him to Herod, who is the governor of Judah. Watch this. Who, interestingly enough, what are the chances that the governor of Judah was in Galilee that night? And it'd be like, you know, we, 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 we say, oh, he's from Indiana and we're in Kentucky. And the governor happens to be there. And so they take him over to Herod. This is beautiful. We're about done with the story. And when we're done with the story, you will come back to the seventh one because I believe it is the most intense moment in the 21 hours. Jesus had a, a friend of his that was like his best friend. John the Baptist, you've heard about him. And John the Baptist and Jesus, who may actually have been related, there's a very strong possibility, but at the very least, they were like best buds. Well, Herod was a rascal. Herod was a wicked, wicked man. Herod fell in love with his brother's wife, his sister-in-law. And so he took his sister-in-law from his brother, and he said, you'll be my wife. And he had this incestuous relationship going on with his sister-in-law. And John the Baptist heard about it. And John the Baptist called him out on it. That is wrong, Herod. And so Herod arrested him. And one night in a drunken stupor of a party, Herod calls up John the Baptist from the prison and they cut his head off. And now a few months later, the best friend of John the Baptist, Jesus, is looking eyeball to eyeball with the guy who killed my best friend. Now watch this. It is the only time in 21 hours where Jesus never responded 
one word. When Pilate asked questions, Jesus answered. When people talked to him, Jesus spoke back. When Herod asked him questions, Jesus stood there, looked him in the eye, and was silent. You are the guy who killed my best friend. Herod roughs him up a little bit more. Says, I don't want to have anything to do with this. Send him back to Pilate. They show back up to Pilate. Pilate's like, oh, great. I thought I got rid of him. And by now, word had come that Jesus was in custody and the Jewish population had gathered around the palace of Pilate and there's hundreds of people out there calling for the life of Jesus to crucify him. And Pilate's like, what am I gonna do with this guy? I've got all these people. And so Pilate thinks, well, I'm gonna try to satisfy them in some way. And so he brings out a guy named Barabbas who is the wicked, most awful person in the whole land in prison. And Pilate says to these crowds, I'm gonna let one prisoner go. You want Jesus or you want Barabbas? And they cry for Barabbas. Now let me ask you something. If somebody said that we're gonna let the most awful person in the world go free or we're gonna let you go free? And the crowd picks the awful person over you. And Jesus knew that was gonna happen and he said, I'm, I'm okay with that. And so that didn't satisfy the crowd. And so finally Pilate says, well, maybe they'll be satisfied if we flog him. And so they order the, the, the soldiers to take him to the back and hang him around a, a, a pole where he would receive a, a Roman flogging. And my intent in this message is not to uh, grotesque anybody out, so I'm not gonna get into the aspect of the flogging. I'm simply gonna say this to you, that a Roman flogging, which was a whip on the back with 40 lashes minus one, they did 39 because the law only allowed 40, that the art of a Roman soldier was the ability to flog a man without killing him because most of the time it killed him. And so they flog Jesus and they bring him back and he appears before this crowd crying for his execution. And he's just been chosen not at the level of the most vilest man in the world. And now here is Jesus near dead and Pilate says, is that enough? Is that enough? And the crowd yells, no, crucify him. And Pilate washes his hands and says, kill him. It's about nine o'clock in the morning when they take Jesus to the ninth aspect of his death and they put him on a cross. There's all kinds of aspects of the cross that are important for us to understand, but in the interest of time, I, I just want you to hear this. I want you to know how he died. I think it is imperative for sheep to know how our shepherd died. The act of actually dying on a cross normally happened because of something that you may not normally know about. You'd be hung on the cross beams of the cross 
sometimes by rope. In Jesus' case, it was by spikes. And then your feet would be on the, the, the center pole, again, by, by spikes. And in most cases, you had a, a thing jutting out of the cross called a C-dial, S-E-D-I-L-E. And it was basically a seat that you would sit on. Jesus didn't have a C-dial. Neither did the criminals next to him. And let me tell you why he didn't have a C-dial, because they wanted him to die a brutal way. When you hang on the cross, the weight of your body, the difficulty of that is that your body would slump. And when your body slumps, it makes your lungs very difficult to breathe in air, particularly if you've been beaten up like Jesus had and was in the condition that he was in. And the only way, the only possible way to breathe, because you don't have a sea dial holding you up, the only possible way is to pull up on your feet and your hands to breathe and then slump again. Most people who are executed by a cross die of asphyxiation. They basically strangle for no air in the lungs. Jesus dies on a cross that way because he's so incredibly painful. He dies quicker than anybody, and so the 10th aspect is the fact that he dies. Many people on crosses would last for a long time with sea dials. We have stories of people who hung on crosses for days on sea dials. These guys didn't have sea dials. And so when they came around to find out if the three people, Jesus and the, the, the criminals next to him were dead, they noticed and they went to the criminals that they were still alive. And remember what they did? They broke their legs. Why'd they break their legs? So they can't come up and breathe. And they went to Jesus and because of the condition of his body, he was already dead. And they were so cruel. They were so cruel. That just to be sure or just to be ornery, they abused his corpse by jabbing a spear into the side up into the pericardium of the heart. And Jesus died at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, why did we do that, Dave? Why did we look again at the 21 last hours of the life of Jesus? Because when you go back to the Good Shepherd story in John 10, Jesus said five times, I know what's going to happen, and I willingly choose to do that for you. Now hear me. When the sheep, me and you, when the sheep have something in our life that is not right out of error or poor decision or intentional sin, but when we have those things in our life that are wrong that all sheep remember us doing, anybody do any of it today? I'm in the lead of the pack of that. That when we have that, somebody's got to take care of that. Somebody's got to deal with that. 
The justice of God, let me blow your bubble, the justice of God does not allow wrongdoing and sin. I'll just forget it, put it back, forget it, put it under the carpet, don't worry about it, it's over with what happened at college or high school or, or this morning, you know, just forget it, nobody cares, you put it on. That is not true. Somebody's gotta deal with that. Somebody's gotta make that right. Somebody's gotta pay the penalty for that under the authority of the justice of God. And there are only two choices to make it right. The sheep, me or you, or the shepherd who says, let it be me. Now that you know what he did, will you hear his voice and follow? Yes. Never forget what he did. And so what has his voice been calling to you about? What have you been hearing? What do you know that he wants from you? What are you holding back that is rightfully his? If you are sheep who know what he did, you hear his voice and we follow. Father, I thank you with embarrassing words that all I have in me is to say thank you. But I pray that you will not allow us sheep to forget the price. And so when you call I will follow. Amen.